what do you say? Hi everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. It's great to have all of you here. Hope your week is going well. Hope your 2020 is going well before we get into it. Um, I just want to talk about my brand new book very briefly, People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business and Teams is available in all good bookshops. Go and get it. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And there's an audiobook version where I'll use my dulcet English tones to read it to you as well. Um, but more importantly, let's get on to our guests today. I'm really thrilled to have two rock stars from the open source content world. We've got Jason Hibbets and Jen Huger from Red Hat. How are you both doing? Doing great. How are you? Oh, living the dream. So let's quickly spin through the rap sheet and then I want to really get on to what both of you have been doing and a remarkable accomplishment with opensource.com. So, um, so Jen, you um, are a managing editor at opensource.com. You started out uh, with opensource.com as a copy editor, and then you went on to be a content editor and now the managing editor. Um, And you previously worked in PR, you were at Blast PR, and then moved on to Mediplay where you started, uh, I think you probably primarily kicked off your writing career. and then Jason uh, is a senior community architect at Red Hat. You've been there for uh, 17 years. So <laughs> I'm assuming the you know, short run ceremonial. in the tech industry, right? <laughs> All right. Ceremonial rooms named after you in the building. Uh, previously, Jason was a, a support project manager uh, and then moved on to be a senior marketing specialist for ISVs at Red Hat. Um, and Jason, you and Jen are both involved in a whole load of different communities, but you know, you're a board member for Code for America. And you're involved in Innovate Raleigh. Uh, you're an editor at southwestraleigh.com, a co-chair at the NC Open Pass. So lots of great expertise with both of you. Now, what I want to get into today is opensource.com. So for people who are not particularly familiar with opensource.com, what is it? Jen, why don't you kick us off? Sure. So opensource.com is a publication publishing stories about open source software, hardware, methodologies, um, basically focused around users and developers of open source. Right. And I mean, there's lots and lots of... Um, you know, websites online about open source that have been around for many years. I mean, back in the old days, there was Slashdot and, and all these different sites. But opensource.com has grown enormously. Give us a bit of a, a bit of texture around um, how many people you have visiting, what kind of, how many articles you have going up, some stats that we can wow everyone with. Yeah, so... Um... I mean, I'll just say first, too, that I feel like, you know, the main difference with opensource.com is that we're taking articles from people all over the globe who really come from a diverse uh, diverse set of backgrounds and mm. diverse set of technical roles. So, you know, maybe these other sites were a little bit more focused on um, a certain set of um, people. And, and opensource.com is really open to so many different groups at doing so many different things. And I think that that is what makes the content different. It also yeah. makes uh, the editorial process very different um, from, from those other, other sites yeah. and just other, other ways of doing pop, uh, uh, content publishing. So it's, it's really an exciting thing. We just hit, um, a brand new record. We broke 2 million page views or reads in a month Yikes. in December. Wow. That's a yep. lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of a big deal. We, we feel like, um, you know, we've been sort of, um, working to, 
to get to this place where um, we're reaching a ton of people with open source, you know, we're really sharing a diverse, again, a diverse set of stories and experiences. Um, and then we, uh, the other record that we broke is 1.3 million unique visitors, which is, you know, a, a, a super important number. The actual number of people have come into the site yeah. in one month. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive because a lot of marketing people would dream to have those kinds of numbers for their content. Um, and to your point about diversity of material and people, I mean, I remember when I first got involved in open source back in the late 90s, everything was really designed for open source neckbeards. You know, everything was super hardcore technical content. <laughs> so, Jason, I mean, you've been involved in this from the very beginning. What was the strategy in trying to develop that diversity of content? Because it is different. Um, and how did you go about doing it? Yeah, well, it did take us um, a couple cycles to, to figure things out. And we learn every day we are a learning team, learning organization. Mm. So we're constantly looking at how we do things, um, how do we can improve things, what we need to stop doing, what we can start doing, and really lots of experimentation. And that's been with us for the whole time. So, I mean, back in 2010, we launched it. And our goal was to publish a new article every day. And right. we did that and we learned from it. Um, we actually had a, a different kind of community model where a, a Red Hat person was in charge of, of, we call them channels, essentially different topics, and they would source content for their channel. Um, and then we evolved right. that over time. And I think really where we hit it uh, was probably, Jen, what, 2014-ish? 2014 is when things yeah. changed. What happened? What changed? We, we recognized that people was at the center of what we were doing. We recognized that uh, there were certain contributors who kept coming back and they kept coming to the watering hole and they kept providing content. And so we said, well, we should actually design a program around that to maybe provide some incentives, some known, some unknown incentives. And, uh, and that's really when it changed. And, uh, and, and we really saw the uh, up the kind of the hockey stick moment starting to happen. Yeah. Now I want to get into that a little bit later on, but on the on the content side in those earlier days, what was your approach? Because people talk about content all the time as a means of building growth and engaging with your audience, but it's easier said than done. I mean, one piece of content a day. Uh, I'm, again, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this would be like, I wish I could get even close to that. I can barely get a piece of content out a week. So what did you do back then to achieve that? Um, I mean, I, I feel like, and Jason, you might know a little bit more about the early, early days, but you know, what we really started doing was figuring out what are some, uh, pretty specific headlines, um, that we want to get published and then who can we ask or who is out there in the community that we could throw this out to. Um, and so it's really about aligning our community, our writer community, our reader community with mm. the, what we're looking for. And then, um, you know, matching that up. And so much of it really is about the relationship. Like we have to have a good relationship with these folks, um, in order to make that happen. Right. So you started with, so you started with, okay, what, this is a mind-bogglingly controversial <laughs> it is, yes, approach. Yeah. Isn't it? What do our readers actually want to read, as opposed to <laughs> which push muck can we convince to write some material for us? So, di so did you basically? I mean, when you were evaluating that kind of content, and and also today, when you're looking at the kind of material that you want to go out there, mm -hmm. 
Are you pulling data on that? Are you looking at the trends that you're seeing in the kind of content that, that's successful on opensource.com? Well, you know, to the program that Jason was alluding to, that's really where we started. We were sort of like, here is a brain trust almost of like 10 or 12 people um, who are out in the community, uh, living it, working it, connecting with people. What right. are the topics that those people care about? What is it? What, what are the things? Um, and they would bring that back to us, um, bring that back to the hive, you know, and say, this is what we need to go do. Um, and now right. we're, we're doing that on steroids, but we're also right. adding, uh, in the data, you know, we're, we're actually looking at, um, Google and and all those sorts of things about what are people searching for? Literally, what are they typing into the browser? And what and kind I would, of... I would add to yeah, that. Ahead, um, we, we also kind of keep the human voice piece of it. So we don't do a lot of editing around voice. We do for style and matching. But when you read some of our content, you can hear... Uh, the people's experiences and you can kind of hear their voice coming through uh, their story because that's really what we want. We want people to hear stories from other people who are like them. Yeah. And that's actually another thing I kind of want to get to in a second. So uh, is voice. So I'm building a list of things I want to get get to because there's so much wrapped up in this. And I think, again, a lot of people listening to this will be able to pull lots of things that will be useful to them. But when you talk about data, right? Um, imagine somebody walks up to the two of you at a conference and says, okay, I've got a blog. Um, I've got some content on there. Uh, I've got these social media accounts. Um, I'm, I'm operating within an industry. Um, and I, I have some writers who are happy to write some content for me. I don't know what I should be writing. Like, how can I get the most ba- the best bang for my book to, to produce material that is as valuable and as interesting to my readership as possible. When they come to you and ask about data, what concretely, concretely would you say the most critical things? Is it, are you looking into Google Analytics? Are you looking into the amount of comments on a pit post? Is it social media? Is it industry trends? Like what, what do you typically look for? Jen, um, I would describe so, the weekly health check yeah. that we do, right? And, and yeah, just go for it. Yeah. Which, which weekly health check? <laughs> we yeah, have a well, lot of The them. one where we, uh, we look at every article we published every week mm. and we, um, have some t- statistics around it, mostly around page views. Uh, and then right. we actually go through and give commentary on, well, why did we think that performed well? Uh, mm. And we then that's a continual learning. So uh, I don't know if yeah. a bit more detail than that, but yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit more. So, I mean, first I would say Google analytics. I mean, you know, th- definitely some sort of tool, um, we have, uh, we have our, um, kind of, we have like an SEO team that helps us, uh, use Hrefs and, and various tools that actually are like helping us use Google to find out what people are searching for. Um, right. and, and then once you are publishing and you're getting, uh, you're getting feedback on how the articles are performing, you definitely have to go back and analyze that. And, and we do mm. that in a very, um, round table, right. real time way where that's not using tools that that's using our our brains and and our voices to say, okay, why do you think that did well? What's your take on that? How did that process work? Who is this author? What's their experience? There's there's a lot of different um, you know kind of uh, feedback inputs that go into um, evaluating content. Right. And is it is there a, like a timeline on this? Because obviously, when content just comes out, there's the initial bump usually, and mm-hmm. then. 
you know, it, it amazes me how many people, for example, will um, will post a bit of content, they'll shove it up on their social media networks, and then they never ever talk about it ever again. <laughs> yeah. And the only time it ever pops up is if somebody searches something and it's got the SEO behind it, mm. or alternatively, um, it's like a, a recommended article on another piece of content. So are you evaluating the performance of these pieces further down the line, like three or six months away? Yeah, we're so we're doing a couple things. We're we're getting a day after read, like a 24 hours later, how did it do? And then right. we're also doing a week later. So we have a what Jason was talking about. We have a weekly health check every week on Tuesday, and that looks back at the content from last week. Um, and it. so, of course, the stuff published towards the end of the week is not going to perform as well as the other is the things. Pub- but you still get a really kind of clear idea of how um, of which ones did the best and which ones did not, and um, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So let's let's move on a little bit then to you touched a few minutes ago on kind of the voice and maintaining the voice of your authors and I think this is interesting for a few different reasons one is how do you create great content that lets somebody's voice thrive and then the second piece is you know let's let's be honest this opensource.com is a project that is in large part sitting inside of Red Hat, which is a commercial company that's now part of IBM. And a lot of marketing people tend to get twitchy when you allow community people to to write content for them. So starting out with the first piece, what have you done to get the right balance of the individual's voice while also making it a piece of content that's easy to read and consistent with, you know, opensource.com? Oh, wow. That is such a big question. Um, (laughs) and honestly, I, you know, I've never been asked that directly. So it's just, um, and there's just, you know, we're celebrating our 10 year anniversary this week. And so there's, it's really been 10 years of sort of evolving that and, and saying, Mm. um, how do we do that? And, and what are the little tiny nuances of how we build relationships with people that help us do that? Um, right. So I, cause your community members play a role in that, right? They help to, it's not like you say, here's a set of editorial guidelines, like with some other sites. Um, you know, you, you don't say you have to, you know, it, it, you, you didn't use the Oxford comma correctly. <laughs> You're right. out, right? Right. We have <laughs> a style guide. We have a style guide. We have, which is um, basically, you know, a set of copy editing rules. We have copy editors. We have people who help us literally prep the content for the CMS for Drupal. Um, and right. they help us be, you know, a professional publication. Um, so it looks nice. It reads nice, um, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, you know, I feel like we've really... Uh, we've really chased down and, and put a lot of emphasis on people's experiences. And so, um, we have people who've never written before anywhere who come to us and say, I want to tell my story, but I'm not a writer. And and we say, we want you to come anyway. And I, we understand that it's scary, but we have professional copy editing. We are professional editors. We got this. And, and Mm. that's, we pride ourselves on that because we want that diversity of storytelling and we want people who are out there just doing the code or just working out in the community who don't know how to write writing it down, right? That's the hard part. Writing is hard. Yeah. 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 So it sounds Even, like uh, English as uh, non-English speakers, uh, we help them get their story told. And 
and provide those editorial services uh, to make it, um, you know, more professional. Right. And, and, and how does that editorial process typically work? Is it that, so, you know, you meet somebody at a conference or somebody who's doing some interesting things and you say, Hey, would you be interested in writing a piece for opensource.com? And they say, hell yeah, of course I would. <laughs> um, do they start working on it? And then, you know, you send them the style guide and some, some, some broad guidelines, and then they, take a whack at it and send it over and then it goes through your editorial process? Yeah. I mean, honestly, we have kind of a wide variety of, of ways that it comes through. We have a web form and that's completely anonymous in terms of like, we've never, we don't know these people from in, any previous experience. Um, and they'll send in a, an idea. Um, sometimes they'll follow up with a draft immediately or the idea is just pitched and we say, sounds like it could be interesting. Send us a draft. We'll take a look. Mm. Um, mm. We also have people, like you said, that we meet at conferences, that we meet out in the real world, that we say, hey, that sounds awesome what you're doing. Um, why don't you send us an email? And so basically we like to start with a pitch. Like what's the what's the main idea here? Because we want to give you feedback immediately. Um, but again, a lot of times we just get a draft. The first thing we get is a draft. It just kind of depends on where people are in their preparedness uh, for <laughs> Right. for sending something over um yeah and, yeah yeah. Uh, yeah so it can range yeah and and how do you when you've gone through that process how do you maintain quality because there are some people who are for example great writers who are very verbose and waffly um but then there are people who are absolutely terrible writers who have amazing content and can lay out their their viewpoint or their approach or their tutorial in radically different ways is it just repeated editing um that kind of gets to that quality or is there some other things that you've approached it with? well so we publish anywhere from 80 to 90 articles a month um which ends up wow. being yeah which is quite a lot really to to physically process through the through the pipeline and um we honestly just don't have time to do that many edits. So it has yeah. to be, it's, it's a lot more about the upfront communication. So we've created mm. a lot of documentation for first time writers, especially to review saying, here are examples of great articles. Here is our style guide. Here are, um, as many, you know, sort of helpful tips as we can possibly give you. Some people read it and some people don't, that's just the reality. So sometimes we yeah. get not great work from the beginning. Um, and we, and you know, if we find enough value, there for, you know, we have to evaluate time and, and all that. Um, then we will do a lot of work to make that, to make that a great article. Um, yeah. but the, the truth is too, that we have to reject and, and that's just part of publishing. So, um, yeah, you know, there's a kind of a balance there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the circle of life. <laughs> <laughs> I also get the impression that, um, different people have different uh, levels of self-editing and reflection depending on the publication, right? Mm -hmm. So to give you an example, this is going to sound like an absolutely horrendous humble brag, and it's really not intended to. Um, so I just uh, wrote an article recently for Harvard Business Review, and they're kind of a bucketless item for me. I've always wanted to write for them, love their content, and co-wrote it with this guy called Jeff Buskang. And I scrutinized every word in that piece to make sure that it was just just right. Okay. But if I had written 
the set, like a similar article for maybe somewhere else, I might have been a little bit more fast and loose with the level of editing. And I imagine that as opensource.com has grown so significantly, and it is it is one of the main places where people in the open source world get their information and, and learn and develop their skills, um, I would presume that the level of quality has started to just naturally rise because if someone gets an opportunity to write for you, then they take that very seriously. Would you have you seen any kind of general trends in that quality just changing? That is absolutely true, for sure, a hundred percent. And I hadn't really thought of it in that way, um, Jonah. But that makes a lot of sense. That you know, when you're writing for Harvard Business Review, you're, you know, kind of have a certain hat on uh, when you're writing. But we have seen that, um, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's I just. Part of yeah, the evolution ahead, was uh, people uh, over time, uh, when I would go to conferences, I would say, hey, um, do you know what opensource.com is? No. So I would explain it to them. Uh, and then over, I don't know, three, four-ish years, the question would go, hey, have you heard opensource.com? Yeah, I actually read a couple articles this week. I was like, yes. Did you know you could write <laughs> for us? No, I did not no. know. <laughs> so now we're at a place where people know uh, we built a platform. They know about it. They're reading it, and and for the most part, people know that they can contrib- contribute. And that's where yeah. um, we find giving those sample headlines and giving that editorial direction of we are looking for this specific thing, or we want to do a series on X, Y, and Z, uh, and then people opt in. And I think that does help with the quality bar of you know if it's yeah. not people read it and they go, well, I want it. I feel a little bit of pressure to make sure that it's up to snuff, right? Exactly. Yeah, because you don't want to be that person that writes the terrible bit of content <laughs> that lets the side down, or you get it rejected and you lose out on this opportunity, right? Right. And even if it is rejected, we do give feedback. Um, I, right. I had a great example earlier this week um, on the project I'm working on now. Uh, it wasn't quite there, but I gave them a little feedback and encouraged them to, hey, if you want to add X, Y, and Z to this, and they did, and it came back way better. And so um, I was able to, quote, save an article because of because uh, of that uh, approach. Right. Yeah, same. And, you know, we I would say, honestly, we rarely reject. It has to be basically like, oh, wait, your tool is not open source. Uh, we can't publish that. <laughs> usually <laughs> usually that's the case and, and not the other way around where it's just not good enough. It's not really – that's not hmm. even something that we deal with as much anymore. And if it's just not quite – uh, the quality that we want it to be, uh, like Jason was saying, we, we try to give a lot of feedback and, or we do our own editing and we send it back and say, what do you think about these edits? Right. Right. So switching gears a little bit to the second piece of this tonality and quality element here is, as I mentioned earlier on opensource.com, um, you know, you both work for Red Hat. Um, you have your colleagues who work for Red Hat. Many, 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 in fact, the vast majority of people who write for opensource.com do not work for Red Hat. Um, um, But we live in a commercial world, and we live in a world where um, people who are generating content that is associated with a company or a corporate entity, there's there's politics and controversy around that. I've worked with a, a really broad variety of companies where, as I mentioned earlier on, marketing folks can be very uncomfortable with allowing the baton to be handed over to community members um, without super strict editorial control. And from what I've seen with opensource.com, you don't have that super strict level of editorial control or corporate um, uh, meddling. 
How have you gone about doing that? How have you designed something that's so objectively independent that it sits very much inside of a of a major billion dollar company? So from the very beginning, um, we wanted to create a vendor neutral platform, and I feel like we've done a great job at that. Um, you For know, sure, maybe one yeah. or two instances uh, that have slipped through, but um, I I like to describe it as opensource.com is an arm's length away from Red Hat. It's got its own branding. It's got its own color scheme. We have our own uh, design mm. guidelines, brand guidelines, uh, and that's intentional. And And we protect that with everything we can because we know how important it is to the community. Uh, and you, Jono, you know this right. from experience. Communities can sniff out a marketing thing at, at, like right oh. away. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's one, And so we're very aware of that and conscious of that since we launched 10 years ago. And uh, I think that's what's really helped um, help build the community, help generate the interest and, and the popularity of where we've gotten to today. And zoning in on that for just a second, when you did that, because I think there's a lot of subtleties in what you just said, Jason, um, you mentioned like the brand and the logo. Um, what were the things that you intentionally factored into that? Because when I think of opensource.com and I think of Red Hat, the brand is different. The domain is different. Um, you have a, an open editorial process and a community that's factored into that. Uh, what were the most critical things that you felt like were important for having that arm's length separation? Yeah. Um, so a couple of things. I'll go back to the very beginning. So to just talk about the domain name itself, Red Hat owns this opensource.com domain name and a bunch of people were like, well, what do you want to do with it? I said, well, let's start a community. And this was back uh, <laughs> obviously in 2010 can we start a community to look at how we can apply open source beyond technology? That was kind of the crux of the, the, was the genesis right. of, of the community. And so right. from that point we go, okay, we got a domain name. We want it to be uh, an arm's length away from the brand and really like subtle things. Like we're not going to use the same fonts, right? We're going to use uh, different fonts. So it doesn't, if you, if you're a font geek, you know, it doesn't look like Red Hat from a font standpoint. Um, right. We don't want someone to land on it and it's red and black and looks like the corporate site. It's got its own color scheme, right? Our, our blues, greens, and grays. And um, and it was just those things like really kind of factored into um, creating something uh, that was, you know, that didn't look and feel like Red Hat. And really the only yeah. association is a couple links back to our kind of terms and conditions and policy things from a legal perspective. And then right. uh, what we call our endorsement branding, which is say, hey, this is a community that Red Hat supports. Right. Which is very common in open source, right? You know, blah, yes. blah, blah, supported by some company. What was that like? Like internally? I mean, I know that you can't tell us everything because this is a podcast that's on the internet and you probably enjoy your job. <laughs> but what was very that much. like going through that process? You know, um, did you have to have a fight with your legal team and marketing folks to try and get that? Or did you find that the company was generally in line with that? Because Red Hat is a way more amenable company to these kinds of projects because of its heritage with open source than many. But what was it like inside of Red Hat doing that? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it was easy, but it was probably easier than probably uh, other organizations would experience. We had support yeah. from very top levels from the very beginning. Uh, Jim Whitehurst, our CEO, was very supportive of the project. Uh, Delisa yeah. Alexander, our VP of people, um, very supportive of the project. Uh, in fact, uh, and maybe this, Jen will want to talk about this later. Uh, we just had an, a fantastic meeting. We, our team uh, at Red Hat, um, had a meeting with Jim Whitehurst yesterday to give him a little bit of a readout on the 10-year anniversary. 
and he's still yeah. very supportive and very excited uh, about the growth and where we're at today. Hmm. So, and uh, and the, the the legal part, our legal team was extremely supportive. Uh, in general, they don't tell us no. They go, okay, well, let's go find out how we can do that for you. That's that's great, which is and rare. Yeah, and has that changed? Over the years, because the other side of this coin can be, and again, I've seen this in other companies, where you now have this runaway success by no accident, by lots of hard work. Um, but that can then sometimes get sales folks and marketing folks to come and say, hey, we want a piece of this action. We want to be advertising Red Hat Enterprise Linux there. We want to be advertising our other products and services there. Oh, yeah. And that has definitely happened, you know, and, we, right. and, and we've had those conversations. And I really, I think that the key here is that um, our management, uh, Jason, myself, we have just reiterated to everyone that our success is built on the community and we can't compromise that. That, yeah, that is the crux away, of everything. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And we are extremely protective of our territory. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think there's some people yeah. that don't understand the idea of community. And when you start to explain it to them and you say, hey, look, if if we do that, you're you're we're going to lose X amount of page views and and then you're going to yeah. ruin our community. And it, once they get it, it, sometimes they don't get it, unfortunately. Um, and you just have to keep yeah. saying no. And until they go away. It's, well, it's, it's one of the things that I uh, discovered when I started consulting was, uh, you know, talking with different people in different organizations, like different levels, like, so, you know, the executives, but then people on the ground doing the execution work is the concept of communities and this balance, particularly in a corporate setting, is just so unintuitive for so many people. Um, even in, I mean, you, you can't, run a company like Red Hat, where you've got thousands of employees and every single person is an expert in open source. It's just not possible, right, to, to build a company that big. So I can imagine that some folks were just, just didn't understand why, okay, you've got all of these, you've got millions of people, like page views coming to our to, to opensource.com. Why wouldn't we sell people there? So I can imagine that was a, a lot of nuance in getting that over without lecturing them, right? That is so true. And I, you know, in its own way, because of that, opensource.com has almost been an educational tool inside Red Hat for teaching ah. about open source communities. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, I do want to get into the um, the community that you've built because I think it, for me, what you've accomplished with content and uh, and and the success there is is in itself fascinating and worthy of discussion. But I think what you've done with your community is really interesting. So why don't you just share? You mentioned earlier on that you've got this community of folks who write a whole bunch of articles for you. What does that community look like, and what do they do? Uh, well, so we have a group of 23 right now, uh, folks that we call correspondents. Um, and the program has been around for almost five years. Um, mm. Jason Hibbets kicked it off in 2013, 2014. And, um, really, so this group, uh, we meet with them on a weekly basis, um, you know, they, they, there's an option to call in and chat with us on a weekly basis. And then, um, 
we work with them on an individual level to talk about what are your passions? Again, that idea of what's happening out in the community, what's happening um, in open source, uh, and how does your expertise overlap with what our readers are looking for? How can we kind of synergize, get the most out of this uh, relationship and and serve our readers, which is what we're here to do? And so these people, the, let's say they come to you. Let's let's take well. I'll, I'll take me as an example because I've experienced this very directly with OpenSource.com. Um, I was all things open. I think it was in Raleigh, which for anyone who's uh, interested in open source and technology is an amazing conference, and you should definitely go and check it out. Also, Raleigh is one of the coolest cities in the U.S. So it's just even if it's just going to Raleigh, that's enough of a reason. If you're looking to hear some more Southern draw like mine, come to Raleigh. All things open. <laughs> <laughs> we all love the accent, Jed. Um, so uh, I think I was having lunch with Jason and he was like, hey, you should write for this this new website we're, we're launching called opensource.com. And I wrote a couple of pieces and it went up there and it was fun. And um, as part of it, um, you had these like weekly meetings, like you said, I couldn't make most of them due to my schedule, but a lot of people would dial into those. There was email discussion around this, it was great editing, went into my pieces and uh, and obviously lots of other people's pieces. And then one thing that you you did back then, and I'm sure you're probably still doing it, is for people who wrote over a certain threshold of articles, um, they'd come out to Raleigh and there'd be like a day of meetings and you'd give awards out to people. There'd be like random bits of swag would appear on my doorstep with the opensource.com <laughs> logo stamped on them. <laughs> you know, LED speakers and all kinds of stuff. Um, <laughs> We, but you uh, really we took- like to celebrate. We we celebrate our milestones with our community because we understand right. that we couldn't do it without them. Um, yeah. One of the reasons why we invest so much time in the correspondence is they actually produce about 25% of our content every month. And right. that's just amazing. So we know that investing in them is worth our time. Uh, it's worth our relationships um, because not only are they publishing for us, they help us find new authors uh, they help promote the site. I know several of our correspondents who would be glad to go stand at a booth at some conference and promote the community because they're that invested in it. Um, yeah. And then, Jen, do you want to maybe talk about, like, we've got some folks who are retired uh, and maybe some of the backgrounds that people are, are joining? Yeah, yeah. paint a picture of the kind of people who are in your community because it is a really pretty diverse group of people, right? Yeah, it is. So we have Scott Nesbitt is uh, a guy in the, who's been in the group the longest, and he lives in New Zealand. He's an IT consultant. He's closing in on 200 articles total over the years written for opensource.com. Wow. And you know, his, he just wants to write about open source tools. He wants to do sort of a little tutorial, how to get started with, um, and he just churns them out and, and, you know, he just, it's a great fit for him, uh, in terms of sharing knowledge and sharing it with a, with a big group and with a, you know, now a growing and pretty big audience. Um, right. We have a a couple few really folks in the group who are retired from their careers in tech and they're really looking for, you know, who am I now? What happens next? How do I continue to give back and to contribute something? Um, Mm. not working, not out there working. I mean, we've had several people tell us this is my new purpose in life. Right. And to be that for them is on its own a whole nother level. Amazing. Um, 
but it really is a place we're trying to make it a place, you know, where people can be if it's the right fit for them. Um, yeah. We yeah. have a couple of folks who uh, sort of were great writers from the beginning, but have honed their writing even more over the years with us in this program, who are now published authors of books, um, which has been a dream of theirs for, for you know, a long time. So, um, yeah. it's kind of, you know, it kind of opens new doors for people, gives people uh, a new um a new look at life in some ways. And then we have younger folks in the program too, who are still in their careers, getting started with their careers. We actually have uh, a guy in Paris who's in, uh, at university. So he's not even out in the workforce <laughs> yet. Um, uh, so there's really cool. the folks that are still kind of in the career part, um, where we're seeing, um, the win-win is like, we're, we're giving them the opportunity they're able to align it to their job or their interest, and that's why they're participating. So uh, we have several people who their employer is giving them permission to uh, to contribute 10 to 12 articles a year uh, to be part of the program. That's awesome. And the thing is, as well, is it? I think where you've done a really nice job here is you keep people engaged, but you do it to a level that's not pestering. Mm-hmm. Like you give people the space that they need where they can be creative and they can have a platform to get those ideas out there. But it's not like you're you're bullying people into sending you content. And and the editorial process has always been very thoughtful. Um, how have you gone about, you know, you got these people who probably at the beginning, like a lot of casual participants, are a little bit nervous and they don't want to screw it up and they don't know how much time they can devote to this. How have you got, but you've built a community of people who are really, have been around for a long time, who are very enthusiastic and, and, and active in open source.com. How have you done that? I mean, I touched earlier on, 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 you know, for example, the swag that you send out to people that you reward mm-hmm. people with. But what other things have you done that you found have succeeded in building those community members and their level of retention? Yeah. Uh, so we... I guess a few things. We share daily stats with them on how the articles are doing. So, but, but again, it's sort of like a thoughtful and a light touch. We want to provide information about the publication, about the program, but we want it to be sort of uh, self-serve in a way that you come to us when this is the right time for you to download that information. Uh, your life gets right. busy. We can still do this. You want to take a break. We can still do this. You want to, you know, do something totally different and leave. That's great too. We still love you. So we do try to have, right. uh, we kind of have this, uh, phrase that we use around the office, which is, um, hold things loosely. Uh, with mm. an op- with an open hand, and we really have taken that into our editorial process, and we we try to be open. You know, like we want this to be a win win uh, uh, relationship and, and a true relationship in the sense that it's personal and it's real. Um, and and the reality is is that these are humans, and and we don't yeah they who are volunteering their time, you know, to do this. And, um, so we, we take all of that into account when we're working with people. That's, that's a really interesting point. I think in that, in that, that notion of just the right level of support and guidance. But I think, again, that's something that is massively unintuitive to so many people. They just don't know how you go about doing that. Can you unpack that a little bit, Jen, and talk about, you know, give us some examples of of, of of when you've done that 
to kind of that 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 loose touch. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we've had writers come to us and say, um, you know, I really want to write. I think that I could start by sharing my uh, Linux experience. We have a, a sort of a series of light touch series <laughs> called <Right>. um, <laughs> called um, My Linux Story. And um, the idea there is really, what is your personal experience with Linux? You could tell us, you know, I got started with Linux when I was nine years old. This was my experience over the past 20, 30 years with Linux. Uh, I have right. a ca career in it, whatever it might be. So these sort of one page personal experience stories with Linux are really popular because it's just people's it, it, it keeps that voice who they mm. are. And it really is, it's not technical usually. Um, although they find a way, um, <laughs> <laughs> um right. and it's, it's really just about who they are. So, um, that that's kind of a good entryway for a lot of people who want to share, but they're nervous about writing. Like you said, they're, they're not, they're unsure about how to, um, get started with us. So we, you know, try to be encouraging. We try to present those types of opportunities, uh, right. to get started with us. And then, you know, beyond that too, the, kind of to the human element part, lots of times people need, um, they need breaks, but they also need the right kind of encouragement at the right time. And so, I guess really the thing to say there is that we try to stay in touch with people, but again, we, we try to not nag. So we set up these points in time where we're, we say we're going to be, or these right. places where we're going to, we say we're going to be. So we have a discourse set up for the correspondence and, right. uh, you know, we we're, we're there, they're talking to each other. It's, it's almost like a support group in a lot of ways, um, for writing ideas, uh, throwing stuff around. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of sort of insecurities that come out. I'm, I'm not sure about doing this. What does everybody think? And, and sometimes it's not a good idea and sometimes it is. And so there's right. a lot of feedback in that. What would you say on that note is, um, what are the, the most common um, insecurities, fears, worries that people have when they're thinking about this, when they're kind of flirting with the idea mm -hmm. of, of writing or they've done something and they're maybe very new, they're, they're those casual participants. How would you describe those, those insecurities? I think that there's kind of two levels. One is always, does anybody care about this? Um, right. And we try to remind people that, hey, in a lot of ways, you're an expert. And if you care about this, somebody else cares about this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then there's the other level is, um, sort of to the quality idea. Like, is this a well-written enough article? Is it well-researched enough? Are my, uh, is my code correct? Does it make sense? Is it enough? Um, because I'm sure you can understand that, like, especially with a lot of these technical topics, you could, you could go into so much depth. And so where do you, where are the limits? Um, right. and, and so we, ha we, we do a lot of, um, we do a lot of reviewing at various stages to, um, guide people and encourage people. And do you find that, I think with so many things in life, it's just, if you have a go and you know that it's probably going to suck a bit at the beginning, and then you work through that and then you, you get good feedback and peer review 
and you've got some people who are cheering you on, gradually it becomes easier. Do you find that that is usually the path for these folks? Because, you know, they, you touched on, you know, the fact that you've got a discourse forum where uh, writers are, are there to, to spend time with each other and they can provide help and guidance. Uh, but do you generally find that people kind of break through some of those uh, initial insecurities or do they tend to just live with them and they just have to manage them? <laughs> well, um, you know, I, it's probably a little bit of both, but I do think... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, human beings, the human beings, right? Exactly. The human condition, really. Um, but I do think that, that, that it improves. I think that people see positive feedback. Um, they see page views. They see comments. They see it being shared on social media. They get positive reinforcement from the outside world um, on their articles. And mm. um, that encourages people to, to write again and try again. And really, it kind of becomes a challenge for a lot of these folks is, you know, how, how do I beat my own records? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, on that note, because uh, one of the things I, um, I remember when I was writing more with opensource.com was you'd, yeah, you'd send out these emails with um, congratulations to blah, blah, blah for the, the most popular article this month. And here's some other folks that have some really popular articles. Do you find that those kinds of metrics um, resonate with your community members? Because from my experience, some people will see things such as that almost like a lead, not a formal leaderboard, but highlighting top performers. And they will be incredibly motivated by that, uh, particularly if they get on, you know, if they're one of those people, or they'll be motivated to succeed there. And some other people will feel a bit beaten down by that. Um, what's been your general take on that? That is, I mean, that's just, that's very true. Exactly that. Um, we, right. we do our best to balance that because it really does encourage a lot of people. Like you said, especially if you make it to the top of the board and you make it on the top 10 list or you, you know, uh, your article is the best one from yesterday. Um, right. But we talk about page views, uh, unique visitors, you know, these are great, um, sort of guiding lights, but they're not everything. And we don't want to focus too much on those things. We don't want to gamify everything. We definitely, uh, try to balance, you know, the idea of reads and, you know, that's a great, it is a great metric. It helps us understand the health of right. the of the site in a, in another way, but we also want people to understand, um, that it's about the quality of the article. So perhaps your article about open source underwater uh, tooling, <laughs> you know, we get all <laughs> kinds of stuff, um, uh, open source farming. It might right. not do as, as great as a Linux article, Python article, um, but we want a diversity of topics on the site. And so this is still very valuable. And, and a lot of that has to come from the editors. It has to be verbal communication because they're working against what they're seeing in, in numbers. Right. Now, changing things up a little bit, what's been your experience and what do you see the role of discussion in a site like uh, opensource.com? You know, because, um, again, like a lot of people will say, hey, I... Um, I like the idea of putting content out there, um, but I'm worried about um, people coming and leaving critical comments um, in, in a comment box. And, you know, we're going through a, I think, a, a renaissance in 
in society right now in how people understand digital technology and how we use it and you know people using it as a soapbox and toxicity and things like that and increasingly people just saying i don't want any comments like it's just content and content only i'm sure that you have both had a lot of discussion about the role of reader feedback and content uh, and comments in this what what's been your approach to that yeah jason do you want to take this one i can um thanks uh, well, the first thing is uh, we do have a code of conduct uh, on the site, uh, kind of guidelines, and uh, we enforce them. So we see someone violating that through comments. Um, we remove the comment and then we inform the author of that comment why we removed it. Uh, so right. I feel like from the beginning, we want to create a positive feedback loop. Um, not to say that we have all positive comments and we do leave um uh, some more maybe uh, thought provoking or um, yeah. not as encouraging comments uh, because, you know, people have different opinions. Uh, but for the most part, um, our correspondents do a great job at monitoring the conversation happening on the site and flagging things uh, when they think it needs to be addressed so that um, our team can handle those and take care of it. Right, right. And uh, is it, would you say that the reader feedback piece is a big part of what you do or are you because obviously we've, we've talked a lot about content and and authors and getting material out there but what do you do in line with the readers of opensource.com is it just you just want to provide them with great content or is there other stuff that you do there yeah well, it is that we don't want to create content but uh we do a, a weekly email newsletter um that people opt into um and we look at the metrics and we give the readers what we think they want we don't again we don't force feed that we really want to focus on this article because it's the best um, or, or because we want them to read it. We want to give them the mm. best content that, that our readers are giving that. So we're yeah, looking yeah. at kind of the statistics from the readership and then passing that on to the readers again. Um, and it sounds like Jen wanted to jump in. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we have an article that will generate um, 10 or sometimes more 20, 30 comments um, where they're saying, oh, what about this tool? Oh, what about this? What about this? And we have taken those comments and turned that into a new piece of content. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, but mm. we are on the lookout for that kind of thing. Um, we've been publishing a poll every two to three weeks. And a lot of times, you know, if people don't see the option in the poll they'll put something in the comment and then we can repurpose that and even do an article that's sort of like, here's a roundup of 10 tools mentioned in the comment yeah. of this article. Here's how to go install them and use them. And, and that kind of begs a que the question of how comfortable generally do you feel with controversial content? Like I'm not talking about obviously material that's, that's just blatantly offensive or misogynistic or racist or any of that kind of nonsense. I'm talking about, you know, an article that comes out and says, for example, a a common approach in open source is not the right way of doing things or that, that is critical of um, another view. Do you, do you feel comfortable providing opensource.com to be a place where people can share those kind of views where you're probably going to get you know, a bunch of fired up, <laughs> uh, you know, people kind of coming in and, and leaving comments and discussion. Uh, we uh, tend yeah. to take the high road on a lot of things uh, just because there's plenty of content out there. Um, but our team does have discussions when certain topics come up. Um, yeah. And we just, we, we talk about it before we, we, um, we decide to publish anything. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, like 
I would say, you know, we try to stay to controversial, which is Vim or Emacs versus um, <laughs> <laughs> something like that versus I don't even know, I, I, maybe discussion about open source licensing. You know, we, we are trying to avoid um, the more, um, uh, I don't even know how to, what the right word to describe it is, but we, we do try to take the high road because we feel like there are enough sites and places out there where people can talk about those things. Uh, we'd rather keep it family friendly in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, and isn't it as well? Positive Cause I, and happy. Yeah. Cause <laughs> I remember, I, I remember writing a piece back in 2017, I think it was for opensource.com where I saw, um, I saw some, um, tweet that I think it was Stephen O'Grady put out from Red Monk about um, the fact that the GPL license was seemingly declining. And I wrote a piece about it. It was very respectful and dignified and all the rest of it, uh, not trying to court controversy specifically, but it was a controversial piece. Mm. And it got a lot of traction. Like a lot of people, you know, rabidly disagreed with it. And that's great. And a lot of people really agreed with it. But there's a fine balance, isn't there? Because that could have been that could have been a buzzfurdy 10 reasons why the GPL sucks, or it could have been, is there a decline of the GPL? Exactly. Like, do, do, it's all of the details. And so the way that you wrote that was very sort of, here are the facts, here's the, here's the situation versus, um, kind of like a, a more, a different twist and a different take on it. So we're, we're much more focused on the facts and the situation. Right. And, and so it sounds and like you're, it sounds like you're open. It sounds like you're open to controversial topics, just so long as they're presented in a objective, respectful manner. Right. So, which which makes eminent sense. So, we're we're kind of gearing into the into the outer edges of our discussion here, and I, I want to make sure we do touch on enable sysadmin in a second. But before we get to that, um, what would you have done differently? Because this opensource.com has been, I think by all accounts, a wildly successful project. Um, but what things have you learned along the way that you would have switched up and done differently? Mm. I'll start, Jen, and maybe you can add some things. I would have started the community sooner. Uh, and I, mm. as I read People Powered, I was like, oh, yeah, we did that. We did that. We did that, too. And I may not have put it in that context, but I see how it's happening here. So I wish, um, and, and that's kind of, uh, and we'll talk about it here in a moment, but we're we're starting with community unenabled sysadmin. So as I look back right. at opensource.com, that's, uh, we would have found, um, formalized the community a little bit, a lot sooner in, in my, if I could go back in time. Right. Yeah. Like if what we else? had had your book to, uh, to get started with versus, you know, kind of looking back and say, we'd say we did that. We could have started that a lot sooner. <laughs> um, you know what people, you can't pay for these kinds of sound bites. <laughs> wow. Keep talking. I'll just sit here with my, with my chin rested in my hands listening. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, to Jason's point, we just, we really have learned as we've gone so much with this community. And when we're, as we're starting up some new things, Things, we're accelerating because we have learned all of these lessons. So on my side, you know, so much of what I do is this editorial, I mean, really the guts of the, the content. And so, um, mm. I've, I've learned so much. I mean, you pointed out that I started out as a copy editor and then content director and now, you know, really running the, the editorial machine. And so I have learned a tremendous amount right. through this career and this, in this role. Um, 
if I had known all that to start, I could have, you know, I could have done a lot different with editorial sooner, um, to process the content faster, to, to just best practices really around style guides. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I don't wish it that way, uh, by any means. Um, I think it all had to play out. Yeah. And the lessons wouldn't have been as profound if you had all the answers, right? It's like, I think it's part of the thrill is that you figure it out as you go along and then you're your changes have manifested in success, which is always good. Um, so what's for the future? Like where, where, where do you see it moving? Where do you see opensource.com moving forward in the next couple of years? Well, so in 2019, we refreshed and revamped the correspondent program, the core group of 23 people that we've been talking about a lot in this podcast. Um, and so we, we took a fresh look at it. It was time to, um, you know, we changed the name. Um, we started discourse. We kind of cleaned up some of the requirements and the documentation. It felt really good to, to get that laid down. And we got that right. wrapped up towards the end of the year. So I really feel feel like in 2020, you know, that group is, is such a heartbeat of opensource.com. And so we want to accelerate that. Um, we don't really know exactly what that looks like, which is another reason I love this job is it's, it's always a learning experience. And if we keep people and our relationships with them in the line of communication open at the core, we'll figure it out. Um, yeah. You know, so the, the deal is not, oh, we want 40 correspondents. We, we want it to be the right balance. So we want it to be, um, healthy. Uh, so, so, but it's really just accelerating that in whatever, uh, you know, terms that means, uh, for 2020. Keep on keeping on. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing something good. Exactly. So, um, before we wrap up, I do want to get into, enable sysadmin because uh it sounds like the the great open source.com flavor is being applied somewhere else now jason do you want to dig into this like what is this because you yeah, mentioned to this um, to me a few times and I, I think i get it but explain it to our beautiful intelligent listeners yeah so this is really exciting because um i i still get to work with the open source.com team uh, because on uh, on my side and at red hat i'm the product owner of the opensource.com website of another project called the Enterprisers Project, and now right. enables sysadmin. So I, I align um, all those three things on the background. But on the community management side, uh, I'm getting to architect a community from scratch, which is really <laughs> fascinating. And so enable mm. sysadmin, our goal was to be the watering hole for system administrators. And the one key difference is that it actually lives on redhat.com. And right. So if you visit redhat.com slash sysadmin, um, you'll see uh, some great content for system administrators uh, by system administrators. And I think what we did, we launched this in June. Uh, and before we even launched the website itself, which at, at that point is was our minimum viable prototype slash product, um, right. we actually started contacting people. Hey, would you be interested in participating in this community? would you write uh, a blog that sits on redhat.com? And we found very quickly that the answer was yes. And we've gone from zero to almost 250,000 page views in six months. Right. Wow. That's impressive. So <laughs> we're take, and and the, the takeaway for me is we're able to take all the lessons that we've learned from opensource.com, from Enterprisers Project, and apply them to enable sysadmin and actually accelerate some of the community growth. And so we're taking... Um, 
things like I think you call them submarine goal or submarine incentives. Oh, in the submarine incentives, yeah. Yeah. So we had 17 individuals uh, on Enable Sysadmin hit a certain level um, that we're, uh, we haven't announced yet. And I spent last week shipping them notebooks, pens, and handwritten thank you notes. Unexpected, didn't know it was coming. Uh, and inevitably, it shows up on social media. And then people ask, hey, how, how did you get that? And, it, and it's, a, it's a nice form of engagement that then we can use to attract other uh, new authors to the site. That's awesome. That's awesome. I have to say, you you um, mentioned that you were using uh, some of the stuff from People Powered to um, around around enable sysadmin, and that I was thrilled to read that because, like, both of you are some of the best people in the business at doing this kind of work, um, and that for me was was validating about the approach, but also like you say, being able to take everything you've learned from opensource.com and apply it into something brand new. I think it's going to be fascinating to to see what that looks like uh, going from the beginning. I guess the question is, is when I think of sysadmins, some of them are a pretty prickly bunch. Um, how are you how are you approaching that audience? Because people, a lot of sysadmins are very, very technical, very, very opinionated about content, very opinionated about marketing. How are you going to do it a bit differently to opensource.com with that specific audience? Yeah, well, I've got a front row seat to this, so we'll continue the conversation of how this looks and what it looks like. But I <laughs> right. so um, as we we're um, as I was building out the framework uh, based on people powered, uh, I thought it would be a great idea to talk to some existing users, and so we did. Uh, I think about sixteen user interviews, and mm. the number one piece of feedback that I got that was heard loud and clear was why I, we asked them why are they participating in this community. And by, by far, the number one answer was because I want to share what I've learned back with the community so that others can do this. And I think what we're seeing is kind of a, a new explosion of the system administrator field, whether you call it DevOps, whether you call it system administrator, no matter what you call it, there is this, this thirst for this knowledge of yeah. how do I do stuff at the command line? How do I make this stuff work? We're even seeing uh, the topics around burnout and career um career paths in sysadmin do really well. So uh, That's I interesting. think you know, yeah. for us, we're looking for the the folks who, who aren't those prickly sysadmins. We're looking for the ones who have that thirst for knowledge, who have that thirst for uh, sharing back what they've learned, and we're inviting them in uh, to be part of the community. Well, and it's just like we said at the beginning of this discussion around opensource.com, you know, bring in a diversity of content because sysadmins are not just people who manage systems. But then it's not just people who are making computers run and clouds run. They have burnout. They have uh, other elements that wrap around that that are relevant to their job that they're interested in, that they're interested in meeting other people around, right? So it strikes me that that diversity of content is going to be everything. Um, and what I'd love to do, if you're up for this, Jason, um, is, you know, get you and I, I, I that. I'm not sure if you're both working on enable sysadmin. I'd love to get you both on if you are both working on it or just you, Jason, if you, just you're working on it. But just have another discussion in a year and yeah. walk through those lessons learned. I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah, uh, because- that'd be great. I, and to be clear, I, I handed the reins to Jen. So she's got she's got opensource.com. The future is in her hands. So uh, it's in Excellent. good hands too. 
All right. Good stuff. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you both for coming on. Uh, why don't you share with everyone how they can find out more about opensource.com, where they can go and sign up if they're on the right content, all that good stuff. Absolutely. So um, it's in the name. Uh, please visit opensource.com. Uh, <laughs> Pretty to, intuitive, that one. <laughs> to check out uh, the site, to read the site. Um, but we also, in the top nav, uh, you'll see uh, resources, you'll see cheat sheets, but you'll also see a whole set section about how to write for us. So there's, um, there's a web form, there's, uh, email, there's, um, a style guide. There's lots of information about how to get started. Um, and I did want to reiterate too, that, you know, we have hundreds, thousands of writers every year. And so this isn't just about the correspondent program. This is about people all over the world. You can write once you can write 20 times, you know, so we're, we're, we, that that is an important uh, you know kind of distinction to make there. Yeah, and what a, and what a place where you can get your work uh, published. And I and I can say, like I say, I've written various articles for OpenSource.com, and the, and they really are. Jen, Jason, the rest of the team are an absolute pleasure to work and I, work with. And I said it earlier, and I mean it. Like I think you two are some of the best in the business when it comes to communities and when it comes to content. Like I think you've done a remarkable job. Thank you for coming on and sharing it. Yeah, thanks for having us. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you very much.